You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Are we practicing yoga in the exact same way that people did thousands of years ago? Almost certainly not. Do humans today even need the same things that humans needed thousands of years ago? I would say in some ways, yes, but in other ways, our lives are unrecognizable from how humans lived even just 200 years ago. Certainly when it comes to movement, our needs are very different. One thing that often gets overlooked in the conversations around evolving our asana practice is that it's always been evolving. Let's look at the person sometimes known as the grandfather of modern postural yoga, at least here in the West, Tirumalai Krishnamacharya. Krishnamacharya was the teacher's teacher for three of the main yoga styles that ended up gaining popularity in the West over the past four decades. Iyengar yoga, Ashtanga yoga, and the style sometimes known as Vini yoga. One extremely interesting detail about this story is how different these styles are from each other. Patabi Joyce, the founder of Ashtanga, which is arguably the most vigorous of these three methods, was a student of Krishnamacharya first when he was younger. Iyengar, whose technique is still quite vigorous and extremely detail-oriented, came next. And Krishnamacharya's son, Desikachar, passed on the teachings of his father's mature years with an extremely individualized practice that, at least in contrast with those other two styles, seems quite gentle. So when we're talking about evolving yoga in the West, we're really talking about the continuation of a process that's always been ongoing and perhaps a correction of some of the problematic trends that occurred when yoga jumped cultures and then exploded in popularity. When something becomes trendy or popular, it often gets oversimplified, it gets commodified, and frankly, it gets exploited. And I believe that definitely all three of these hold true for yoga. Yoga's increased popularity has led to a glut of undertrained, but usually very sincere teachers sharing what they were taught without much ability to understand the why behind what they're saying. Today's podcast guest is one of the leaders examining asana specifically as a physical practice for modern humans and teaching it in a way that not only makes sense for how we live today, but also empowers both teachers and students to understand the why behind what we're doing. Lara Hyman is the host of the Redefining Yoga podcast. She's the founder of the Lit Yoga Method, which emphasizes smart alignment, functional movement, and spiritual wellness. Through its holistic connection between body and mind, Laura's methodology is influenced by her decades of experience as both a yoga teacher and a physical therapist, and we'll get a little bit into that history and background in the conversation. If you haven't yet been introduced to Laura and her work, I cannot wait to introduce you to this dynamic powerhouse of a human being. So let's jump right into the conversation about evolving asana, and I will see you on the other side. Laura, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. How did you first discover yoga and what made you decide to teach it? 
Well, I discovered it 26 years ago when I moved up to New Jersey from North Carolina after graduating from grad school. I had always loved movement, always been athletic. I have three brothers. I was always, you know, doing sports with them. Um, I ran in college for a few years until I was injured and I did dance. And after I got injured from running, I started teaching aerobics. So I always loved um, exercise. And then I really loved it in this format of sharing it with others and being in this room and having this amazing kinetic energy. So when I moved up here, I joined a running club because I didn't know anyone. And it was a great way to, you know, kind of bridge a love, a passion with trying to meet new people. And the runner, the running club offered yoga. And I thought yoga at that point, I knew very little about yoga and kind of had an assumption. I think many people have is that I was like, it's going to be stretching and meditating. And I was like, Oh, I probably need to stretch. And I went to it and it was actually a form of power yoga. It was a form of Ashtanga. And I just was so hooked. I, I couldn't believe how amazingly challenging it was for the body, but it also really made me feel the way I felt when I would dance, that being in my body and experiencing that movement and having a very um, honed focus, kind of like when I was running. Um, so it just, it, it really was a melting pot of a lot of my already existing passions. And so I wanted more of that. This was in New York uh, because I would go to New York on weekends to join the running club. And so I looked around the area for yoga and there was really very little here. There was one small studio teaching Iyengar, which I wasn't particularly interested in and because I really wanted this form. So I just started looking at like videotapes. These were VHS videotapes back 26 years ago and then reading all the yoga books I could get hold of. And just like many people, anything that you love, I wanted to share. And I had already had that background and foundation of leading group exercise classes. And I was doing that here. I was teaching spin classes and some um, other kind of high intensity training classes. And so I just started teaching. Yeah, I was like, I really love this. And can I start this? And the the wellness center said, sure. I don't know if you know, yoga is really going to be a big hit here. So we called it flexible strength for the first year. And then after a year, like 50 people were coming and they're like, you can call it whatever you want. So I just started doing that. And it was, um, you know, it was it was some just again, sharing a love and passion. And that's where it all started. And then I just kind of continued from there. And so you were already a physical therapist at this point. So how did that sort of influence your practice, if it did, and your teaching? Well, actually, early on, it didn't. I really kept separate hats. You know, I would be a physical therapist during the day and then teach yoga at night. And like many, I subscribe to this ideology that yoga has um, set forth this type of movement and philosophy, and we need to, you know, follow it according to this whatever, uh, you know, greater principle. So I didn't actually use, I, I don't want to say I didn't use my PT brain, but I was really thinking of them as two different lanes. And it was only um, probably after about six years of teaching a, a kind of classical vinyasa class that I started to notice like a staleness in my practice, for lack of a better word. It just didn't feel like 
that kind of novelty and newness and enthusiasm I had had originally. And along with that, or maybe that this um, element in, kind of made me feel more stale is I started to feel the beginning of some repetitive use injuries. My shoulders started bothering me. Um, and then, you know, when I was in my PT world, I went and got my postgraduate certification in what's called neurodevelopmental training, which is really about understanding the brain and how when there is an insult to the brain in the form of a traumatic brain injury or a stroke, that you can actually retrain the movements that, you know, the, the affected side or limbs can no longer do um, with certain techniques. And a lot of that is through developmental um, sequencing, which is when you have, like, you've had a baby, when you go from coming out of your the uterus to standing, you go through these developmental stages. And those are, we don't have a manual for those. We, those, the brain is there really in, in a large part to serve movement. And so we, by doing those early movements, we're growing our brain. And those very kind of primary patterns are still in there after an injury occurs. So we can utilize them to create new pathways for movement um, to be dictated. So I was doing that and having amazing results with these stroke patients, doing a lot of stuff on all fours, half kneeling, on the floor, doing core work. And I started being curious if I actually did some of that, you know, in an able-bodied person like myself, what would that feel like? And I started doing it in the practice of, you know, of this vinyasa and my own practice changed. And it's like, all of a sudden I got that enthusiasm and spark again, like, wow, this is a different approach. It's really intelligent in thinking not only about alignment, but thinking about the relationship of how we can change suboptimal habits of movement through, so using the mat as a way of changing the way we move in life versus just coming in the mat, having experience, and then going on about our day. So I did, after about six or seven years, start to fuse those two and create what is now Lit, um, lit Yoga, which stands for Lara's Yoga Technique, which really is that principle of fusing my background in neurodevelopmental physical therapy with the parts of the vinyasa practice that are really beautiful and sustainable and powerful and having this more complete body mind um, movement practice. Tell me a little bit more about those parts of vinyasa or those parts of yoga that you feel complement the physical therapy, because you could easily just have a physical therapy practice. So you're choosing to combine the two. So there must be something magic in yoga still for you. And I'd love to hear about that. Yes. Well, first of all, I love the, the idea of the sun salutations. I love the idea of this, um, movement practice that is repeated over and over every single time in some way and there's variations on the sun citations and i've changed some just like other people do i think but this idea of, of doing something that is really going to heat the body that is moving all the joints in big ways to get that heat and is in, is is summoning core engagement because the core is the center of the body and as we're moving in big ways we really need it to be very well established, really, really integrated. 
So I loved those movements. I loved that they were moving in a variety of ways, not necessarily just like we do when we're running and running in one way, which is called sagittal plane. And even then there was some movement in a variety of ways, but I have taken it to a new level and really said, why are we just moving forward and a little bit sideways? Let's move more up and down. Let's move more in diagonals. Let's move to the back of the mat. So I started adding those elements. So what I would say is the yoga practice was like almost a springboard for my creativity. So there's a lot of things I do that have that are recognizable as yoga moves like down dog is amazing. Um, but there's a lot of moves that I've kind of made up or, or pulled from functional movement and, and, and PT. So I, what I always say is I'm really bridging the gap because physical therapy is wonderful, but it's very limited for a lot of people because, um, when we have somebody come in, even if I were to treat a stroke patient today, it would be very different than 26 years ago. I'd have very little time. Um, I'd have to probably teach some comp compensatory strategies, which is really like, okay, let's put your arm in a sling. I don't want to teach that. Now, if I get that person doing privates with me, non-based on insurance, I can do many more things. But if we're just based on insurance, as physical therapists, we're really limited. We have a very short amount of time to make some kind of impact. So, and then we have yoga where people can practice it and it's not at the expense, it's not the same expense as going into a PT clinic. And, and yet it isn't always functionally sound or optimal. So I look at this as like, I want this to be preventative. I want this to be, um, you know, therapeutic and rehabilitative. Um, and that means that we need to move, we need to work. It doesn't need to be uh, something quiet and gentle. Maybe sometimes that's good, but for most people in modern day life, they need, they need these bigger movements, they need to be challenged. So in answer to your question, it, it does look like a yoga practice in many ways. So I'm keeping that kind of idea of we're coming to the mat to specifically focus on the here and now. So that mindfulness that I think is not just unique to yoga, but is pretty, uh, pretty much known for in yoga. Um, but then adding on the educational aspect. So for me, I'm not as interested as how somebody is just moving on the mat, but how they take that into their lives and move in their lives. So I think if I've got an hour with somebody, I want them to move really well, but I want it, I want to leave them with a, a few little nuggets of wisdom of how they can move like this in their life. Love it. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just kind of feeling all the threads coming together. What I really heard you implying was that there's this reverence to yoga that you wanted to keep. Is that, am I reflecting back correctly? Absolutely. And in that reverence, just like anything, there's an evolution to it as well. So I think it's not being respectful of something if it's, if that thing is in a box and that we never examine it. And we never say, well, how can we apply this to our lives today? 
And I think in yoga that has been done a lot because it's already safer to like, you know, get a manual and follow it. Like with that, we know that it's in our, in our political life, in our everyday life, it's way easier to have a prescription that you follow to the T and never question. And for me, I think the reverence of any wonderful spiritual practice, any movement practice is to say, is this benefiting a everyone is this benefiting us today but also for our future self and and what is it that we can examine as we move that tells us a little bit more about how we are in our daily life our attachments to things our attachments to um accomplishments um our our ability to be humble you know I, all of those are part i think of this um, yoga practice is that we're not accomplishing or getting anything you know we're not there's no like gold prize if you get your foot behind your head it's are you being a better human is this making you more curious more humble more um gracious more grateful and i think when you really get into the body mind connection that is what happens and i think that's i always say the essence of yoga from the very beginning no matter what transformation it's happened or whatever it's been adapted to is like a raising consciousness and raising consciousness is being awake not going into snooze mode not doing things automatically just because your parents did or just because other people are doing that maybe is not the best for you and everyone around you so i think it's a just a launching pad for kind of daily inquiry of how we can be better humans. I agree. And I think that that questioning and that curiosity is really at the root of what yoga has always been about, right? Even though the forms that we take, whether it's meditating for long periods of time or it's doing sun salutations or now it's doing some more uh, functional movements, that that doesn't matter so much as that that state of inquiry at the essence and you know you say that that isn't the easy route necessarily right and that's true right the yoga the root of yoga has never been the easy road <laughs> and i think too that you know you have a really unusual background and a level of education that you were able to bring to that inquiry that a lot of other yoga teachers don't have. So one of the things that I was looking at your background, there was a description of your work as combining physiology, kinesiology, and neurology. And I think it'd be really helpful if you could give us a quick definition of each of those to help us kind of understand the full context. Sure. Like, so physiology is the inner workings, like at a cellular level, like our breathing, our, our blood flow, our, um, you know, our heart beat, our, our, our inside of our brain, you know, that there is physiology in that as well. So that's all the neurons, the cells. So that's like at kind of the micro level that when we work our bodies, we are actually working inwards and we're working into the changing and improving and optimizing our physiology. We're changing the way we feel. It's energy. We are bodies of energy. And so if we recognize that at a very base level, um, that every cell in our body is striving for homeostasis, it's called. That's balance. 
so that we have the um, ability to have structure like a cell has. It has an outer structure that it needs to have. But inside, there's permeability to it to allow um, nutrients in and things, you know, eliminate things, waste products out. And if you kind of expand that, that's kind of how we are as humans. And you can just go into every realm, whether it's emotional, psychosocial, neurological. It's like, how do we find that balance where we are getting the nutrients we need to be the best person, feel the best, and then how are we eliminating the things that are not making us balanced? So that's the physiology. And when you are working your body, your musculoskeletal system, you are inevitably tapping into the physiology of it. The kinesiology is how that is put into place, how you are moving. So examining movements is a form is, is kinesiology. So a joint range of motion, a muscle activation, those are all parts of kinesiology. And just like with anything, you can, you can, you know, accomplish or execute an action, but it might not always give you the best impact because that balance, that underlying balance might not be there. So for instance, in yoga, many people start in Tadasana and they do this big sweep up and sweep down. So we've accomplished the action of, you know, the beginning of a sun citation. But if we look at the kinesiology of it, are we moving well in the hip joint, which is made to move in a, in a flex pattern trillions of cycles? It's, it's a huge joint, synovial joint. It's made to do that. Or are you moving in your back, not a synovial joint, cartilaginous joint structure, really made to transmit energy from the limbs through the core? But if you don't know that, you're just imitating a movement. Okay, so from a kinesiology standpoint, if we examine it and understand it, we can improve it. We can create more of that balance, that homeostasis, so that I can be going to the ground, picking up my great grandchild, you know, when I'm 90 years old. Um, so I'm looking out as much as I'm looking in the present for the sustainability of it. And then the last is neurology. Everything is dictated by the CEO in our head. This is, the, this is the leader of everything. So if we know that, and, and it's a, you know, a two-way communication always, again, we get smarter when we move better. It's it, because we're not going into this habitual way. The brain is really interested in novelty. It's really curious. We can spark literally the synapses in our brain to, you know, to improve those connections, to have them be more vibrant when we pay attention, you know, when we actually pay attention. So my form of yoga captures all of those because I'm educating people on how to move, not just perform a movement, but the how, the why, why we want to do it a certain way that is more beneficial than another way, even though that other way might have been taught for a long time, even though that other way looks like the same kind of thing, there are actually different mechanics happening. Because when we do it in this more optimal way, our brain appreciates it better, it, it starts to understand that movement and then takes it into our daily life. So we're actually going into that neural pathway versus our old pathway. And then we also feel 
balance. People, you don't wake up in pain. You don't wake up, you don't say, you don't like limit your perspective, what, you, what you're able to do because of the way you're moved or the way you feel. When you change the way you move, you also change the way you breathe. We just want to show up with our full self. And we do that when we understand that we are living in this genius body with this beautiful computer on top. Let's actually learn about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's so fascinating. It's almost like a yoga practice in and of itself to be a student of the body. Oh, totally. And that, and I've had so many teachers over the years who were, who were scared about anatomy. Like, I want to learn this, but I'm like, and I'm like, don't be scared about it. You're walking in it. Like, don't you want to know what all this stuff is? And you don't have to know it at a level like a physical therapist would. I teach it, I distill it. And, and, and again, if you understand mechanics and then understand some of the operations, you don't need to understand individual muscles and what, because muscles are working in collaboration with other muscles. What you need to understand is structures, movement, how what what joints are really made to move in a certain way and how people tend to compensate to to just, again, execute the same movement Two that it, this is for everyone. And we should all get excited about it. It's not limited to the hyper flexible people. It's not limited to like the super like intense people who, you know, do a million chaturangas. This is for anyone who wants to feel better in their body and their mind. Anyone who lives in a body, right? Yeah, I was like, that's all you need. Come out, you have a body, come on in. I'm going to help you. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the patterns that you've observed in yoga that are leading away from homeostasis, that are leading to imbalance, and some ideas that you have developed for bringing more balance to them. So I, I, I spend a lot of time talking about posture because posture is our starting position. So I often say, if you're not starting in a really optimal posture, and that's never like neutral spine, neutral pelvis, it's not like, boom, a single dot. You know, neutral is a, is a realm, it's a spectrum. But it's when you are aligned in your most optimal position where basically your bones are stacked and you are not having to work as hard against the gravitational forces that are always there. And when you start in a more optimal, so that, and then Tadasana translates into every single yoga pose as far as I'm concerned. So once you understand that alignment, I call it the triple S because those are the primary curves of your skull. I mean, primary curves of your spine, your, your skull, your scapula, which is your thoracic spine, and then your sacrum. So if you can get those in alignment and then get all the muscles around the spine, around the ribs, around the pelvis, around the scapula to help to hold that in all these different positions with different forces like gravity placed upon you, you're, you're set. So, but a lot of people pay no attention to like even how you're standing. So you start standing and you start moving from a less optimal stance, you're already out of balance. Your brain is smart though, right? We have an evolutionary wiring. We're gonna move with the path of least resistance to get something done. So people start off in less optimal position. They say they fold forward and lower to the ground. They're gonna do it from their pelvis, from their spine. And again, those are not the parts that we want moving. So the pelvis is the skeletal structure. Under it or within the pelvis is the hip joint. The hip joint, again, like I said, is made to move like crazy. 
We move from the hip and we solidify the pelvis and the spine as we move with gravitational forces placed upon us, which is otherwise known as the forward fold. We do that well, we are, we are balanced. We don't do it well, we're not balanced. So that's the first thing I see off the bat. So if I have a private client coming in, I'll just say, hey, show me how you would do a forward fold or pick up something off the ground. And I see everything I need to see right there. Everything that I see in that movement from standing to folding forward, I know I'm gonna, I'm, it's gonna show up in every yoga pose. So if they round a lot in their back, I'm, I know that they're gonna do something in their arms to compensate for some tightness in their back and down dog. So they'll probably sink in their shoulders to get the openness in, in down dog and let go of the rib cage. I know in like plank, they're gonna, the same thing, it's just, it's just Tadasana, uh, you know, in a horizontal plane. All of that same imbalance shows up there. Take it into Chaturanga, it shows up there, on and on. So every pose is, I can look at a person and pretty much see what I'm going to see throughout. <laughs> I don't know if that is, but yeah, down dog's a big one, forward fold is a big one, and then all the different variations of forward fold, a standing split, um, you know, a three-legged down dog, and any kind of leg balance, one-legged balance thing. It's all forms of that that will show up. What are some of the things that you see yoga teachers who have lots of experience, where are their blind spots when they come to you and maybe they've already been teaching for five or 10 years and they are good at what they do? Where do you see blind spots happening? Well, most teachers that come to me or um, even that are out there and haven't yet come to me, the biggest blind spots is they don't understand the why. You know, so they have, they might have been um, taught all the poses, their names, um, taught sequences, taught sun salutations. But if they were to go into any depth of why you would, you know, make a small adjustment in this or do that, they really, they could say it, you know, but they don't know why. So for instance, down dog, they might say, um, you know, tip your sit bones up toward the ceiling because that was what they were told. But if you say, well, why would you do that? Well, um, that'll help lengthen your back. And you're like, no, that actually tilts your pelvis. So that, that's the biggest blind spot is that mimicry, I call it. And it's, it's not the teacher's fault. This is what I've really realized. I used to get very angry about it over the years that not angry, but frustrated, like that these, all these trainings were out there, so many, and we know that, you know, they've gotten to be that way for certain reasons. Um, and that they were, you know, spitting out teachers and so many of these teachers are paying top dollar and most of them are coming out and they really couldn't tell you about the body. And yet we're teaching about movement, which requires your body. And I was like, what is this? It's like, it's like hiring a car mechanic who can drive a car and then all of a sudden something goes wrong under the hood and they're like, I have no idea what those things are. So they don't know under the hood at all. And that is the biggest blind spot. And it, what it does is it's very, it's disempowering. It makes teachers feel like charlatans. It makes them feel, um, or they double down and they don't question at all and they just repeat, repeat. Well, that's what my teacher said. So it like creates these different 
but nobody's balanced. Nobody's really happy with that because you're missing a huge piece of it. If you can't explain the why somebody says, you know, that doesn't feel great on my shoulder. Well, you don't have to be a PT to understand like this doesn't feel good on your shoulder because when you're lowering from plank, your humeral head is dipping down. Why isn't that a good thing? Well, there's, there's nothing here in front except tendons and you're compressing them. You're not getting the scapula integration in the back. How do you do that? Let's show you. So if you can't even understand the why something is happening or why you're cueing a certain thing, it, it creates may, bl holes, blind holes, you know? So, and I think most teachers at some point if they do it long enough, they, they, they feel it, you know, if they, if they don't, if they go off script in any way, um, it's, it would, they, they're not equipped. That's got a, that's a shitty feeling, you know, like you're teaching the body movement and you've got different people with different body expressions, but like there are some commonalities that you can learn. You can really learn how to teach a variety of people, but you don't even have the why. So that's huge. It is absolutely. And, uh, it's so challenging having taught teacher trainings. I know you've taught teacher trainings and, and do a lot where there is a lot to yoga and 200 hours is not very much, frankly, to learn about the body. So there is a balance. And also I know that the people who come to you for teacher training are interested in the body. But in your average teacher training, you are going to have some people who are very interested. You know, we've almost every cohort I've ever taught had at least one physical therapist in the cohort, you know, um, and then you'll have people who are like, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so, you know, like have all this imposter syndrome and this, this block and this shutting down when it comes to anatomy, which is so sad. I, I agree with you hundred percent that if we're going to teach about the body, if we're going to use the body as our primary vehicle for our practice, we have to understand the basics of how it works. And I also agree with you that it's not that complicated. Like it, it is that complicated, but you don't have to know that much to be empowered. Exactly. At the same time, I feel like a lot of the people who are teaching in teacher trainings, who are teaching anatomy and teacher trainings are starting from the wrong place. Amen. Amen. Like they're making it too complicated. They're, they're making it too disjointed. This is what I remember from my own first teacher training that it was like, whoa, I don't even see how this connects to what we're doing in the classroom. You know, if they would start more with kinesiology, then we could make those direct connections. And when we can see something in action, we feel inspired and empowered to keep studying it. Because you came from an aerobics background, do you think that it's the same issue in the aerobics world or do they focus more on anatomy in their trainings? That's a great question. I mean, we actually are in the process of developing a lit continuing education for personal trainers and other exercise um, teachers, because I've had some approach me who are like, um, we don't do as many movement patterns as that, but I really want to make sure what I'm teaching is functionally sound. And so I do think, I, I don't know enough about their trainings to say what is included, but I, I, I have had a lot of personal trainers also in my teacher training and, um, and they don't seem to have had that background. I think the big issue that you're bringing up is a lot of trainings 
bring in anatomy as a separate component. So it's like, you do all this stuff and it's like, and we're going to have anatomy lesson from two to four, blah, blah, blah. And for me, it's, it's woven and, and just it's woven into everything. The metaphysical, the awareness, the awakeness, the breathing, it's, it's, so it's all woven in there. And we start pretty simple with posture and then we build and we, and it's, every single, everything is integrated. So anatomy, the, the actual definition of anatomy is the investigation of what's happening underneath, you know, and that's like much more than the musculoskeletal system. So when I teach anatomy, I teach it, it, it encompasses everything. And it teaches how we, how we feel. Um, like when we understand like how to actually hold ourselves well, using our core man people roar they find that fire that that power and that is a lot more i would say real and tangible for them than you know saying a mantra over and over that might not ever land might not ever really get encoded you know that so it's but making it all part of it it's all uh, uh, and i think that's been a big mistake when you're teaching anatomy at any like but in yoga but if you were to do this in personal training you just have like an anatomy lecture like that's ho-hum that's going to be boring you got to put it into action you know that conversation makes me recognize that part of the problem is that a lot of the people teaching these teacher trainings that's not in their wheelhouse to do no. so they bring in somebody they bring in like a physical therapist but that's very disparate because they're the main teachers. Then they have this PT coming in teaching anatomy, but it's not really getting infused in the learning. Yeah. And yeah, you have, like you said, whenever you learn something it, to get it really encoded and to understand it, you have to literally experience it in action. You really have to implement it and that they can't be two separate things. And so, um, I think that's why my trainings have been so successful is that I, I can take someone who knows nothing about anatomy or somebody who's like learned a little bit, but doesn't like was at that teacher training is like anatomy was not interesting to me. And all of a sudden they're like, it's obsessed with it because they get it. That's like part of who I am. And it's not just this, you know, two to 10 hour course. It's, it's an ongoing investigation of what's going on inside of what's going on in this body in this mind in this heart it's so beautiful it's such a it's such a beautiful way to practice yoga yeah i agree i agree i i know that my again my own practice and teaching really changed when i started to do more like started to speak more from what i my knowledge but what i also knew to be true, like when we really get it, when we feel it, it's so incredible. So we're not just doing something. I mean, doing something is going to still feel good, but it's a heightened level that um, just makes us feel better in every aspect of our life. What does your personal yoga practice look like these days? Well, I practice quite a bit. Um, and some of it has to do with I'm I film quite a bit. So and then I 
you know, this is my primary form of movement practice. I walk my dog, but I, I don't run anymore. I don't do other forms of movement. Um, so for me, it's, you know, it's anywhere from, it can be an hour a day. Sometimes it's three hours a day broken up. Um, and what's, what I know about my body well, almost being 52, is I can handle it. It doesn't feel like anything really. I mean, it feels great, but it's not, I don't, I feel more energized at the end of it versus depleted. And so I know what I'm doing is really sustainable because I can do it for three hours if I need to. I can, you know, so it, it really depends. Um, but it's usually six days a week and um, it's, challenging. I love handstands. I love inversions. I love challenge. I love to break the mold of what we think we can do as we age. Um, I feel like I'm moving as well, if not better than I was 10 years ago and certainly even 20 years ago. It's different, but it's, it's really strong and it's really, um, I wake up feeling good versus when I was kind of doing repetitive things like running and all that, not to bash it because I love running, but I would just wake up with a lot more like aches and you know stuff. So for me, it's like I want to wake up every day with the most amount of energy and hold on to that energy and create more energy and feel amazing. And that's really what my practice gives me. And do you reserve any amount of time for a practice that's not filming, not planning, but like really just your own practice? Yeah. So I'm one thing I'm definitely known for is I am really creative and that creativity is like, I look at it like my paintbrush. So I am always kind of, whether it's like I come up with something in my head or I see something and I'm like, Oh, that's a kind of fun movement. How could I put that in? And that to me is really important to have those creative times where it is just me and I'm experimenting and I'm seeing what movement flows into another um, and yeah, so I try and do that sometimes. Yeah. I was telling my teacher training group the other day, cause I have a lit level two right now. And it's part of it is innovative sequencing. And what I've seen over the years of teaching is how this is really challenging for a lot of teachers because they're, they kind of get stuck, you know, they're like doing the same things. And then once they go through my training and especially once they get to the second level, they're always writing me, I can't stop thinking of you know, classes and it, it is, it's like a, it's like a little muscle of creativity that you develop. So, you know, there, there are weeks where I'm like, I make up something new every single day. And then there are, you know, weeks where I might, I always try and have one, like, okay, I haven't done like a creative day yet. And so I do try to have that because it's, it's wonderful. A lot of times it'll just come to me and I'll make something up. I don't have any of my books out here, but I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flows. And it's, yeah, it's like my, my, my husband's like, do you need to make up another one? I'm like, honey, this is like my creative brain. Of course I have to. <laughs> I was talking to my assistant yesterday and I was telling her, I can't teach the same thing twice ever. If I look at a sequence I created, even if I created it last week, I will find something I want to improve or try differently. Like there's just something in me. If I look at a sequence that I'll, that's all that I've, even if it's me, who's already created it, I'm like, I can't do it the same way again. I get it. I know. It's so funny. Like I teach five, five classes a week. And, um, and this is what I always tell my teachers, like, you don't have to do what I'm doing or what you're doing. Like, 
you could teach the same class for a week and people will love it. But for my own sanity in teaching, I need a new class because yeah. I did that keeps me, um, I just like, yeah, I'm excited and fresh. And uh, so I'm the same way, but I, I, I also recognize not everybody's like that and they don't need to strive to be like that either. Right. Absolutely. And in fact, many, many students prefer repetition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they do. Yep. How about seated meditation? Do you have a seated meditation practice? Is that something that you work with at all? Um, it really varies. It's not at all consistent. Um, so for me, I think of meditation and its essence is to create clear clarity in our mind and to, um, hone our focus. You know, the, the brain is thinking it's always going to think we're not trying to shut it off. So my practice is so meditative. Like when I get out of it, I feel like so clear, so energized. Uh, it is, I'm, it's, the dust is off, right? And it's also, I'm not scattered or, so my movement to me is very meditative. Um, so I do think everybody's a little different. My nervous system is not one that I need to sit and, and, and meditate. I'm really good with moving with it. Walking in the woods, I walk, uh, we have 500 acres surrounding us. So that is very meditative to me. I just literally walk and just stare you know, at the trees and I don't take anything with me. My dog is with me and that's kind of it. And I'm just really trying to tune into the senses around me. So I think meditation has, a, a again, like it's like put in a box, sitting is one form, but there's many other forms. And um, there are times, sometimes I will, will feel like I've got a lot of work going on. There's a lot in my head and I will just go somewhere and it could be on my couch and I just sit there and I, I'll tell my husband, I'm going to do a little couch meditation. And it's just really for me just to be like, okay. And I don't necessarily, I've been trained in meditation, so I have a lot of different sources. I know at nighttime, if I'm having trouble sleeping, I've been trained in transcendental. So I'll say my little mantra and it's like, it does something to my brain that just goes, okay. So I kind of use it. I, I just use all the tools in my toolbox. And I know that I'm really, really, really finely tuned in my nervous system. So I know what I need when I need, not like five days later. So I think that's the other form. Like I know when I need something and when I don't. So there's your answer. I don't have, a, I have no regular practice in it unless I need it. Because again, when I move, that is for me, the most balancing on my nervous system than anything. Mm, beautiful. And if listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to go? Well, the bet my website is lit yoga, L Y T lit yoga.com. And I have all kinds of things on there. I have a podcast on there. We have a blog on there, um, a teacher training page on there. So I have online teacher trainings, the lit level one is very robust. Um, we are, it's 10 weeks with a two week break, but you have access for your whole life. So lots of people go back and, you know, cause it is a lot of information. As you said, 200, I've done the same one in person. and I can't get that level of knowledge or information in there because it's just, we don't have the time. Um, and then Instagram, you can always find me there. It's Lara.hyman. L-A-R-A is, there's no you in my name. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me and to share some of your wisdom. 
Oh, thank you. This is so joyful. I really, really appreciate it. I love talking to you and I hope we can practice together someday. I would love that. If you're a regular listener, you probably noticed several ways in that conversation where my perspective and what I talk about a lot overlaps with what Laura was saying. It is such a treat for me to get to talk to extremely knowledgeable, caring humans like Laura. It actually gives me hope for humanity, which sometimes I feel like I'm lacking. One of the themes from today's talk that I want to reinforce is that as yoga teachers, we really need to know why we say what we say. If we don't know why, we can just leave it out. And frankly, I also think more silence would also improve a lot of yoga classes anyway. If you find you're saying a lot of things that you don't fully understand, please know this is normal and okay. The fact that you have noticed it is the important thing. Pat yourself on the back and acknowledge that you care enough about your teaching to examine it and question it. Then seek out just one or two mentors, don't overwhelm yourself, to help you dive deeply into those topics that you care about so that you can learn the why. There are so many ways to get mentorship. You could certainly pay a premium for a one-on-one mentorship if that's in your budget. But you could also sign up for an in-depth but group program where you get access to a teacher that you trust. And then your responsibility is to do the work to ask them the right questions. I personally love the membership model where you can be in relationship with a teacher for years at a time without the time or financial commitment of an in-depth training like, let's say, a yoga therapy training. Those are great if you have the space in your life to commit to that, but a lot of us don't. A lot of us are teaching around other responsibilities. It's just a really accessible way to get that mentorship that I think we all need and many of us crave. One thing I've always found really fascinating in comparing a more traditional one-on-one model of mentorship with this kind of group format is that it was the student's responsibility to ask the questions, meaning that the teacher wouldn't open with a lecture and decide where the student was going to focus and what they were going to do. Instead, they would wait for the student to ask a question so they could meet them where they are. So as students, if we want to get more out of the group programs that we're in, it's our responsibility to ask the right questions. And I want to offer that to you this week as an assignment if you choose to accept it. Come up with a list of three questions you'd like to ask your teacher. You could keep a notebook near your practice space and create a special section in it for questions. You might even plant the seed by asking yourself at the beginning and the end of your practice, what questions do I have right now that that would allow me to better serve my students? If nothing comes up, don't worry about it. I believe that consciously going into a state of questioning is a great place to start. Over time, you'll be able to notice and catch questions that do pass through your mind because you have consciously put your attention there. And as with all yoga practice, there's no rush. There's no destination. This makes it both extremely difficult to fit yoga into the current culture and describe it, but also a perfect antidote. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. 
And thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.